Welcome to the Pharmacotherapy Podcast. My name is Lindsay Devon. I am Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston. I also serve as Editor-in-Chief of Pharmacotherapy, an official journal of the American College of Clinical Pharmacy. Today, we are talking with Dr. Abib Rizik about his team's research article published in the December issue of Pharmacotherapy titled Drug-Induced Ototoxicity, a Comprehensive Review and Reference Guide. Co-authors include Josh Lee, Yuan Liu, Lauren Andrew-Katis, Juliana Isaac, and Wendy Bullington. Dr. Rizik is an otolaryngologist at the Medical University of South Carolina College of Medicine. Thank you, Dr. Rizik, for taking the time to join me today, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me on the podcast, Dr. Devon. Well, uh, let me begin. Our readership has traditionally had a strong interest in adverse drug reactions, and drug-induced ototoxicity is an area that has received inadequate attention. Your comprehensive review identified 194 medications associated with ototoxicity. Many of these drugs are in common use. Did your review suggest ototoxicity is perhaps an increasing problem in pharmacotherapy because there's so many drugs um, that are listed, or has it uh, simply been an issue of underdiagnosis? So that's an excellent question. Actually, the primary driver to conduct this study was the findings that a lot of our patients would come to our multidisciplinary clinic with complaints of dizziness with a, with polypharmacy. So about 20% of them on 10 or more medications. And those that were coming with sudden sensory neural hearing loss or sudden onset of tinnitus did not have on their medication list any of those frequent offenders uh, like gentamicin or a recent chemotherapy that is known to be ototoxic like cisplatin. Um, and when we would review their medication list, you know, one would pop up as potentially a case report being toxic. So that's why we decided to do this study. And we were quite surprised to see that there's a quite a few potentially toxic medications that we discard in our everyday practice, like we don't think about often. And um, while there are many causes for sudden sensory neural hearing loss and, and sudden onset of tinnitus, ototoxic medication is one. And having a comprehensive list that, you know, compiling the evidence, even of single case reports, might give the practitioner that is treating those patients a better information and a better counseling for those patients. And I wouldn't say it's underdiagnosed or is it increasing. I think we are more medicated than we were maybe a couple decades ago. So our pharmacological armamentarium is expanding, basically. Well, well, let me ask you another uh, background question. Your review defined two major categories of ototoxicity so that our uh, audience will be uh, will well understand what we're talking about. Would you define for our listeners the difference between uh, cochleotoxicity and vestibulotoxicity? Sure. So the, the inner ear is composed of the cochlea, which is responsible for hearing, and composed of the vestibular labyrinth, which is responsible for the inner ear balance function. And that inner ear balance function is basically like a gyroscope-like function that the ear performs that allows the body to stay steady and keep our gaze uh, steady on a target, which allows us to move seamlessly in space. 
and toxicity to the vestibular system has been largely unrecognized or kind of ignored because it, it is tucked in under symptoms like dizziness, imbalance, lightheadedness that can be done can, that can be due to a CNS pathology or like a central nervous system pathology or a cardiovascular pathology. So uh, traditionally, when, when you use the word autotoxicity, most people would understand that this is a hearing loss or a tinnitus. Now we are recognizing more and more that we need to define specifically cochleotoxicity for hearing and vestibular toxicity for balance issues related to the inner ear. Some of our listeners may wonder about uh, the onset of ototoxicity. Is there in your, your multidisciplinary clinic, do you have a, a typical patient presentation? In other words, do symptoms such as hearing loss or you mentioned dizziness have a rapid onset or uh, do they start with a more subtle realization by the patient or even are they sometimes even subclinical where the patients don't realize that they're having ototoxicity? So um, there is a huge variability in the presentation. There are the known offenders where we are basically patients who are put on cisplatin, for example. We know that cisplatin has a cumulative effect, and that's why patients who are placed on a cisplatin regimen are usually started on autotoxicity watch with periodic hearing tests, audiograms, to detect a drop in the high frequencies or in a specialized test we call autoacoustic emissions. And if we find that, then we make recommendations that if there is an alternative, it should be used. The, the case is a little bit more uh, complicated when you have those less frequent offenders where we don't know or we don't have a high level of evidence and they can present clearly as a sudden sensory neural hearing loss and sometimes more insidiously. Yeah, you're, you're emphasizing, um, it seems, the, the variability in uh, ototoxicity. So sometimes does it actually present as a, a profound hearing loss? Yes, it does. Sometimes it's a complete hearing loss and, and sometimes it's a more subtle, mild hearing loss. And it's worth noting that in some cases it's reversible, like with salicylates. I think that's included, uh, readers should understand, um, in your uh, review of therapeutics about when it's reversible and, and when it's not. I, I, I'm intrigued by the fact that the largest category of drugs discovered in your review are antimicrobials. Uh, you mentioned like, like genomycin, for example. Some of these drugs can also cause renal toxicity. Do you think that this uh, might be uh, an incidental observation, or do you suspect drugs that can cause one type of toxicity also have a propensity to cause ototoxicity? Well, that's uh, also a great question. The relationship between the ear and the kidney is kind of a mystery in medicine. There's about 20 syndromes that we call otorenal syndromes. Although embryologically, there's not really much overlap between the periods of development of the ear and of the kidney. Now, when we look at the mechanisms of toxicity of these drugs, um, for example, for aminoglycosides or the macrolides that are listed in, in our paper, they affect the stria vascularis of the inner ear and work on and actually affect the work of potassium channels and sodium channels, for example, with Lasix. That similarity of action exists in the, in the filtration action of the kidney. So, for example, in the proximal and distal tubes of the kidney, there is exchange of sodium and potassium across a layer of cells. So that could be the link there, uh, although, you know, there's not a real definite answer to that. But let me ask you a, sort of a, to comment further about diagnosis. Is ototoxicity a condition that can be 
diagnose and evaluate using uh, telemedicine and, you know, using a detailed patient history, uh, especially in this time of a pandemic? Or do you need to have confirmation with a physical or laboratory exam? So you definitely need um, an audiogram to objectively confirm and characterize the type of hearing loss the patient is suffering from. Uh, when we're talking about cochleotoxicity and where we, or when we are talking about a sudden onset of tinnitus. We, you can certainly identify and suspect it over telemedicine, but you need to characterize it better with a hearing test. From a dizziness standpoint, when we're talking about vestibular toxicity also, the history can give you certain starting points, but it's actually a good physical exam that you have to conduct in person that would determine whether or not you have a weakness in one of the vestibular systems or not. I think you've alluded to this issue uh, already about polypharmacy, but um, it's noted that many of the drugs that are uh, implicated in your review is having the potential for ototoxicity are used together. Let me give you an example of some that are mentioned in your table. Um, for example, many drugs, many patients might be taking omeprazole for GERD, uh, an antihypertensive to control blood pressure, and also an NSAID for osteoarthritis. Is it known if multiple drugs with an ototoxicity potential increases the propensity for ototoxicity, or are we talking about purely idiosyncratic uh, phenomena? So, yes, in certain cases, there is a synergistic effect, such as with aminoglycosides and vancomycin or aminoglycosides and furosemide. Also, the reports of acetaminophen toxicity points to the fact that in most studies it was associated with codeine, and codeine itself is listed separately as potentially toxic. On the contrary, sometimes those interactions can be uh, beneficial, like aspirin and gentamicin. Aspirin can be protective from gentamicin toxicity, and that, that is thought to be due to the vasoconstriction caused by aspirin. And allow me just to add here, this is why I think it's important to integrate pharmacy students and practitioners, even in the outpatient setting, to detect those, to do an effective medication reconciliation, detect potentially deleterious associations that would have been otherwise looked over because they are infrequent or rare. Well, one of the issues that our listeners will certainly wonder about from, from hearing you talk about ototoxicity is what kind of treatments are, are available? I, I think you mentioned already in your, your article nicely defines where some of these drug-induced toxicities are reversible. But other than discontinuing or decreasing the dose of an offending drug or perhaps changing to an alternative treatment when, when this, they're available, are there specific treatments in the field of otolaryngology for severe drug-induced ototoxicity? And I, I guess I'm thinking of uh, cochlear implants, but there may be others. Correct. So when we look at the ototoxicity and the, we, we, the way we treat it, we have the first part, which is treating, trying to reverse the hearing loss that occurs and trying to reduce the vertigo and imbalance that is happening. And the second portion, if you cannot do this, how do you, how do you rehabilitate the ear to perform the function it's now missing? So for the first part, we don't have um, an FDA-approved treatment for ototoxicity. When somebody presents with a sudden hearing loss of any cause, uh, one of the first mainstay of treatment, according to our guidelines, is steroids, uh, high-dose steroids, along with intratympanic steroid injections. So either the patients recover, or they recover to a point where you can put a hearing aid to amplify the, the residual weakness, 
or they stay profound and then they can become a cochlear implant candidate. I think that's that's uh, good to hear because I'm sure many of our listeners will encounter people with uh, potential or, or certain ototoxicity that they uh, the patients can be reassured that there are some treatments um, available. As sort of a, an aside question, I noticed on your table that hepatitis B vaccine, meningococcal vaccine, mumps virus vaccine, and rubella virus vaccine were, were all listed. And even though the, the evidence grading for causality was low with drug-induced toxicity or vaccine-induced toxicity, I guess we could say, nevertheless, I think clinicians will want to know if the the prospects of a COVID-19 vaccine, uh, do we know at this point if these vaccines are likely to pose any risk for ototoxicity? So the short answer is no. But, you know, if you look at those uh, vaccines that are listed, for the most part, uh, they were live attenuated vaccines such as the MMR. And the actual viruses like mumps and rubella have tropism to the ear. If you have a case of mumps, you, ha- you are at risk of developing a sensorineural hearing loss. So the ear, although it's kind of protected in the temporal bone, it's still a very immunologically active part of the body. And it's, you know, those vaccines could have created an inflammatory reaction that spilled over into that part and caused a hearing loss. So, but again, as you said, the evidence uh, is low. In the case of the hepatitis B vaccine, the actual report describes a case of Meniere's disease, which is a, an inner ear disorder that was triggered by the hepatitis B vaccine. As for uh, SARS-CoV-2, the pathology, there are a lot of reports out there that are trying to see if there is ototoxic or um, autological manifestations of the viral infection. But the, again, the studies are still not well curated. We don't have good information about that, which means that we don't have enough ish, uh, enough answers about the toxicity of the vaccine. Well, hopefully that will change in, in, in the near term. I guess, uh, finally, let me just ask you if you would have any advice for our, our listeners um, of how to respond when they encounter patients who might uh, complain of uh, a hearing problem or some kind of balance issue, for example. Uh, so if there is a hearing complaint or tinnitus that settles in quite suddenly, Um, I would urge the practitioners to promptly send them for evaluation. Uh, A lot of times they end up being treated for infection uh, for a few days and we lose time for our initial onset of treatment, which is the steroids. If there's a balance disorder, make sure to define or determine if the patient is describing more of a vertigo, more of an imbalance, more of a lightheadedness to direct them appropriately to the practitioner that can help them. Uh, While certain vestibular disorders can cause all three types of symptoms, understanding what type can direct the management and proper initiation of treatment. I have to ask you one follow-up question. When you mentioned corticosteroids, um, are you referring to systemic or topical corticosteroids? It's actually both. Usually there's no defined timeline where you need to put the steroid in a sudden hearing loss. But we know that as time goes by, beyond two weeks, the chances of recovery go down. And typically, we start with oral systemic steroids. And if they don't respond to that, we proceed with a salvage injection through the eardrum of steroids. Well, this is very useful information. And I want to thank you again for your contribution to pharmacotherapy, Dr. Rizik. And um, let me remind the listeners that uh, they can find your team's article in the December 2020 issue of pharmacotherapy. Thank you very much.
Thank you.